esteemed by, by a lot of Bible commentators. For example, in the Wycliffe Commentary on Psalms, Kyle Yates states that from the standpoint of Old Testament theology, this is the climax of thought in the Psalter on God's personal relationship to the individual. Note that in his quote here, Yates views Psalm 139 as primarily a psalm about God's personal relationship to the individual. And we, we cannot underestimate the importance of that relationship. It's a relationship that forms the basis for how we interpret, well, everything. Warren Wiersbe recognizes the significance of God's personal relationship with us when he says what we think about God and our relationship to him determines what we think about everything else that makes up our busy world other people the universe God's word God's will sin faith obedience Wrong ideas about God will ultimately lead to wrong ideas about who we are and what we should do. And this leads to a wrong life on a wrong path toward the wrong destiny. In other words, theology, the right knowledge of God, is essential to a fulfilled life in this world. David contemplated God and wrote for us a psalm whose message can only encourage us to be in a, a right relationship with him. End quote. And so as we study this psalm this morning, we will see the nature of God's relationship with individuals, with you, with me. And understanding his relationship with each of us should bless us as we gain insight into our maker. Folks, what we're going to do here is referred to as applied theology. So let's get into it. In order to create an outline for this 24-verse psalm, it helps to understand that the, stru the structure of how it's laid out. Now, if you look on the page of your Bible there at this psalm, 139, look at it closely at the layout, and you'll notice there are breaks after verses 6 and 12 and 18. After each of these uh, three verses, 6, 12, 18, there should be a little break of space. And what these breaks do is divide up the psalm neatly into four sections, with each section containing six verses. Think of each of these four sections as paragraphs dealing with their own subjects. In poetry, and this psalm is biblical poetry, paragraphs are referred to as strophes. So that's a term I'll be using today. When I say strophe, don't let it scare you. It's just, it means that, that little section of six verses, kind of like that paragraph. By looking at the first verse of each strophe, we will be able to identify the general theme for each of the four strophes. And those four themes will form our outline for this psalm. So let's read the first verse of each strophe, and in doing so, we will get a, a feel for the flow of the psalm. Verse 1 begins the first strophe. 
O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Then there's a break um, after verse 6, and verse 7 begins the second strophe. Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? Are you getting the sense of a beautiful flow to this psalm and how each of the themes build from one strophe to another uh, based on what came before it? I'm going to go back now up to verse 1 and then read through each of the first verses of the four strophes in this psalm to give us a chance to appreciate the beauty of how this psalm flows. So the first two, first verses of the first two strophes read, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Then to verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And then to verse 19, um, um, 13, for you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. And then verse uh, 19. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. What? Where did that come from? Slaying the wicked? Men of bloodshed? Gosh, it's like, it's like a bomb was dropped right in the middle of this beautiful psalm. Well, we're not going to get to that part today. We'll have to wait until uh, sometime in the future to, uh, to turn that corner in the psalm. But for now, let's go ahead and finish constructing our outline based on the four strophes. In verse 1, the author describes God's relationship with himself as having searched him and known him. This is a reflection of God's omniscience, that he knows everything. So the first section of our outline is simply the word omniscience, standing for, of course, God's knowledge of everything. Verse 7 begins the second strophe with the author asking, where could he possibly go to escape God, acknowledging that God is everywhere? This reflects God's omnipresence, the fact that he's everywhere. So the second section of our simple outline is God's omnipresence. To begin the third strophe in verse 13, David recognizes the power of God in having created David in secret. The term for this attribute of God, that he is all-powerful, is God's omnipotence, which is the third point of our outline. And finally, we will see in that in verse 19, the violent verse that begins the fourth strophe, um, it introduces actually a focus on God's holiness. And again, we won't be getting that far today, um, but just to complete your outline today, there's the four main points. Now let's take a look at the title for Psalm 139. You'll see that um, just above it, uh, above the start of Psalm 139, uh, it has a little title or superscription um, 
that's attached to it. In fact, there's about 116 of the 150 psalms that have these titles or superscriptions. You'll observe that the title for Psalm 139 is For the Choir Director, a Psalm of David. Now such titles are editorial titles believed to have been added after the psalm were written. Thomas Constable suggests that, as is the case with some of the added and updated material in the historical books, the Holy Spirit evidently led authors to add material that the original writer did not include. In the Hebrew Bible, these titles were usually considered the first verse of the psalm, but precede verse 1 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament um, in, of, of the Hebrew Bible, and also precedes verse 1 in our English Bibles, as you can see right there before you. Choir director refers to the chief music supervisor, the worship leader, as you will, who is charged with overseeing the music. Note that the title indicates that its intended use um, is in organized public worship. As is stated in the title to the, in your Bible, the psalm is ascribed to David. David's authorship is consistent in the Hebrew and all ancient versions. But other than that, the title really doesn't offer us any other insights as to, say, its date. But it obviously would have been um, written during King David's reign. So next I have a, uh, a slide here that, that is going to show um, some landmark events that happened through the Old Testament. And so what we're saying here is it probably must have been written um, in, in this area here around 1000 BC or so. So, um, that's a very common uh, date for the writing of, the, of, of, this, of this psalm by David. But now, interestingly, most scholars, and I, I underscore most, uh, uh, do consider it to be composed much later after the exile. So, after the exile of a, a northern kingdom and the exile and captivity of the, of the southern kingdom here. Well, that's what, um, three to four, four, you know, almost 500 years later in time than the rise and reign of King David up here about 1,000 B.C. Well, it's, you know, maybe, maybe an older psalm of David. Um, maybe this was an older psalm of David from a thousand BC or so that was brought forward to adapt to a set of circumstances occurring several hundred years after David's reign. But I take the position of Alan Ross that there really is not any strong evidence that this psalm had to have been composed at such a later date. And therefore, I personally place it during the king, uh, during the reign of King David in, in about a thousand or so BC. So let's jump in and start with verse 1, shall we? When you look at verse 1 of the psalm, um, remember that it's indicating that, um, it, or the, it indicates that this, 
the first strophe of six verses emphasizes God's omniscience, his knowledge of everything. His intimate knowledge um, of David as a human being, as an individual. So we'll read it now. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. Note the L-O-R-D is in all capital letters. And you may recall that whenever we see Lord appearing in all capital letters in our English Bibles, it means that it's the personal covenant name of God that is being expressed, which is the name Yahweh. And it makes sense here that Yahweh is being referred to because God's personal covenant name is fitting in the context of this psalm, which emphasizes God's intimate knowledge and oversight of the life of the psalmist and also God's protecting presence. The term searched is akin to scrutiny and a thorough examination. This Hebrew verb is often used to describe digging deep into a mine in order to discover minerals hidden from ordinary view. The divine knowledge of God doesn't require that God perform this type of search, but it's a figurative expression serving as a comparison to, the, to something that we humans can relate to, thoroughly searching for something. The figure of a diligent, determined search helps us better comprehend God's perfect knowledge of people. The fact that this Hebrew verb commonly describes accessing minerals hidden deep inside a mine indicates that God knows what's inside us, our very heart, and therefore we cannot deceive him. You'll recall Adam and Eve attempted to deceive God in the garden by hiding from his presence after their fall. And of course, they were not successful at it. Later on, Cain, their son, tried to hide his murder of Abel, his brother, from God to no avail. Even King David, the very author of today's psalm, thought he could hide his sin with Bathsheba, but of course, he would discover that he couldn't hide anything from God. So David is speaking from personal experience here about God knowing him. The words known and know in verses 1 and 2 are derived from the same Hebrew verb, yada, and are used here specifically in reference to God's intimate knowledge of people. Note that in verse 1, the second me, M-E, is in italics because this second me was added in the English version. So originally, the verse simply read, and I kind of like this, O Lord, you have searched me and known. Another translation reads, O Lord, thou hast searched me through and thou knowest. Now obviously, David wrote this psalm about himself, but any of us, I think, could express the same sentiment about ourselves before God. It's humbling. It's a humbling reality that everything about us is known to God. Let's read verse 2. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. Here David utilizes a figure of speech known as merism in order to express completeness. 
And the idea here is to establish two opposites, or you might want to think of them as, as two polar extremes, in order to indicate that everything in between is to be included. We might indicate such completeness using the phrase, everything from A to Z. So here David uses sit down and rise up or stand up to establish two opposites, and by doing so, he is indicating everything in between is also included. Every move he makes. And not only his actions, but even his thoughts, his motivations. As expressed in the second part of verse 2, you understand my thought from afar. Of course, we usually think of afar referring to a, a great distance. But used here, as it's used here, it's probably referring to a, a distant time rather than space, as in long ago, in other words, beforehand. David recognizes here God's foreknowledge, thereby underscoring the broad distinction between creator and creature. Look at verse 3. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. In his 19th century commentary on the Psalms, William Plummer remarked on the thoroughness of God's scrutiny of David in verse 3. He says, and I'll quote here, there seems to be a lot of agreement by commentators that the picture here is of the winnowing or sifting of wheat from chaff in order to observe them for quality and quantity, end quote. In the first half of verse 3, our English word path is derived from a Hebrew verb whose root means on the road to, as in walking or journeying along a well-traveled path to a destination. So David offers another merism here, this time establishing the two opposites of walking down a path in the daytime and lying down sleeping during the nighttime so as to indicate everything in between. In other words, a whole day's activities. What is done in public by day, what is done in secret by night is what God is scrutinizing in verse 3a. But continuing in verse 3b, the second half of, of verse 3, we see David expand God's scrutiny beyond just one day, though it may not be apparent at first glance. I believe we have two reasons to view verse 3b as expanding God's scrutiny beyond just the one day mentioned in verse 3a, the first half of the verse. For the first reason is the Hebrew word translated ways. This is the Hebrew word derek that we've seen prominent also in Psalm 119. It's a masculine noun meaning path, journey, way. This noun itself is derived from a Hebrew verb expressing the basic idea of a path that is traveled. And it is often used metaphorically as the pathway of one's entire life not just a path traveled on a single day, which supports the idea that David sees God's scrutiny expanded to David's entire life. Now, I think a stronger argument 
for the idea that God's scrutiny here is over an entire lifetime is found in the fact that Psalm 139 is written as poetry. In Hebrew poetry, it is common to see parallelism, meaning a correspondence in thought between one line and the line that follows. Now, parallelism can occur in different ways. One form of parallelism, as we have here, is written so that the second line because it becomes an expansion of what came in the first line. If it was David's intention, and I think it is, to create the parallelism using expansion in the second line, then his word ways in 3b serves to expand his walking a path in 3a. So he expands his daily walking a path to the pathway to, of his entire life in the second part of the verse. Again, such expansion in the second line of the thought of the first line is common in Hebrew poetry. And this is why I suggest David in verse 3 is actually expressing that God is intimately acquainted with the pathway or pattern of his entire life. Now, the idea that God is in intimately acquainted with our lives reinforces the theme in this first strophe that God is omniscient. Of course, this could make us feel a bit uncomfortable, knowing nothing in our lives escapes God's scrutiny. As David feels this uneasiness, as we will, and David feels this uneasiness as we will continue to proceed through this first strophe. Verse 4 presents the greatest proof of God's omniscience in, in the opinion of Thomas Constable. Verse 4 reads, Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. Before David spoke, the Lord knew what he was about to say. Not merely, want, not merely once the thought was fully developed, but even while yet it was in the process of development. And just think about that. By the way, God knew that you were going to think about that. Moving on to verses 5 and 6. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. In verse 5, enclosed means to besiege. We think of it as surrounding with armed forces in order to restrict activity and compel surrender. Trapped would be a good one-word meaning. David realizes that there is no escape from God. Behind and before present another mirrorism suggesting that the armed forces have staged themselves both from behind and in front, which means everything in between is contained. So the idea David expresses is that God's omniscience surrounds us on all sides, restricting us. Now, based on our English translation, it is easy to take verse 5 and 6 in a positive sense that such confinement is not an imprisonment to attempt to escape from, 
but rather more like a place of protection with God securely holding his, uh, holding his own with a sovereign hand. Uh, Warren Wiersbe draws this conclusion. The concept of God containing us and putting, it, and putting his hand on us to steady us and direct us is a biblical concept for sure. In the New Testament, we see this with the shepherd protecting his sheep from harm by keeping them contained with uh, using the crook of his staff by day and a fenced enclosure by night. Now, another commentator that I highly respect is Alan Ross, and he interprets this verse somewhat differently. And I like his reasoning. Ross focuses on the fact that verse 5 is another case of parallelism with the first line, 5a, intended by David to correspond with the following line, 5b. So the enclosure of David in 5a is meant to correspond with God's laying his hand upon David in 5b. Therefore, the trapping by God in the first half of the verse must mean that the reference to God's hand in the second half of the verse must also allude to trapping. The Hebrew word that has been translated hand in 5b supports this correspondence. For this is not the ordinary word in Hebrew for hand. Rather, it is the noun, noun kaf, which often refers to the hollow or flat of the hand. In other words, the, the palm. Now, when you think of God having us in, his, in the palm of his hand, you might think of it as, uh, of it as in a protective sense. But watch my hand here. What do you think of when I close my hand? Whatever was in my hand is now enclosed and restricted. Two different connotations here. Protection on the one hand, no pun intended, with my palm open, or a trapping on the other hand when my palm is closed. Ross actually describes this laying of your hand upon me in verse 5 as cupping something in order to trap it. It's a technique that we used as kids with some success while catching grasshoppers for fishing bait. Slowly approaching that grasshopper, and this didn't work all the time, but sometimes it did. Slowly approaching it, then at the last minute, quickly trapping it on the ground with our cupped hands. And this image of trapping does correspond with the first half of the verse's enclosure of David, thus creating the parallel correspondence in thought between 5a and 5b. So, you know, while I can't be dogmatic about this, it, it seems to me that verse 5 is intended to convey the uneasiness David has about the Lord's controlling and evaluating knowledge. And actually, David expressing this uneasiness about the Lord's omniscience dovetails perfectly as David cries out in verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. When David says God's knowledge is too wonderful for him, it is not that he is happy and rejoicing about it. Our translation, wonderful, 
in English, is a, it's a good translation, but it is a different, wonderful, than we usually think about. The translation is based on a Hebrew adjective from the root pali, which means to be unusual, to be difficult. David is crying out that the Lord's perfect knowledge, David is crying out that the Lord's perfect knowledge, what we term his omniscience, is beyond David's ability to comprehend, let alone control. This is the kind of wonderful that David has in mind here. And this carries into the second half of verse 6, with David admitting that it is too high for him to attain. In Hebrew, the, the verb, it is high, describes something that is beyond reach, simply unattainable, like the high wall of a, of a fortress. And so as he stands before this high wall of God's knowledge, David senses he is powerless to scale it, and he is certainly right about that. As the reality of David's confinement sinks in, he impulsively considers an escape so as to distance himself from the trapping hand of God. But then, as he thinks that through, he realizes how irrational such a response really is. We see the conclusion he draws in the second strophe, where he begins in verse 7 by asking, Where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? Having wrestled with the Lord's omniscience in the first six verses, David now considers in the second strophe another divine attribute of God, his omnipresence, that God is present everywhere. He allows us to peek at his thought process as he asks two more as he asks two questions. Where can I go? Where can I flee? The Hebrew noun for presence refers to a face or even the entire person. In other words, what we would call a face-to-face -face encounter. This underscores that God in his omnipresence is literally always with us, not just figuratively. A change of place or circumstance does not allow man to escape the presence of God. Just ask Jonah. And by the time David writes Psalm 139, he knows this to be true. So he asks the questions rhetorically as a way to express the opposite. which is that the presence of God is everywhere. Beginning in verse 8, David identifies four extremes, um, being locations, extreme locations, or special, spatial, spatial distances that some, someone might flee to in order to try to escape God's presence. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. David introduces, us, introduces another mirrorism in verse 8. What opposites do you see offered in verse 8 as you look at it? Heaven and Sheol. The Hebrew for heaven commonly refers to the sky, 
but it is also used uh, uh, for abode, firmament, air, stars. In other words, it can refer to everything God made beyond this earth. It's the heavens that we look up at at night and observe with our senses. So that's one extreme. The other extreme, the opposite of this mirrorism, then, is um, Sheol. And we usually consider Sheol as a reference to that under, underworld place of the dead. And that's, that's, that's true, but it can also refer to the grave where the body is placed at, at death. And so David's mirrorism includes everything between where the dead lay in the earth all the way out to the vastness of the heavens beyond the earth. David identifies his third and fourth possible escape destinations in verse 9, which reads, If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, the term rendered wings refers to the outer edges or extremities of something. The underlying meaning of the, of the term dawn is the first rays of daylight as dawn breaks with the rising sun. So because the sun rises in the east, the outer edges of those first rays of daylight is the far western horizon, bringing light. And we're talking about covering that distance at the speed of light. J.J. Perrone offers th this interpretation. Even flying with the same swiftness from east to west as the first rays of the morning shoot from one end of heaven to the other, there is no escaping God. End quote. The final escape destination David comes up with is the remotest part of the sea. The term sea not only can refer to sea in the obvious sense, but also to the westward direction, specifically the furthest west. This is because the Mediterranean Sea is what lies to the west of Judea. So in this case, sea would be the farthest part of the Mediterranean Sea laying towards sunset from Judea. Remember Tarshish and Jonah Tarshish was considered as far as you could go west. So in verse 9, David contemplates escaping to the farthest westward reaches. In verse 10, we see David's conclusion to such a plan. Even, before your hand will, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. Now notice the change in his tone here. This is important. He's no longer expressing the uneasiness that he was earlier that he was earlier about God's omniscience and omnipresence. Verse 10 is less about being trapped and more about David recognizing the blessing of abiding with God. It is easier to see the change in David's tone when we look closer at verse 10. See the word hand in verse 5, the Hebrew word for hand meant palm or hollow of the hand in the sense of trapping something. But in the first half of verse 10, this is a different Hebrew word for hand derived from the more common noun yod. Yod refers to both the hand and 
the forearm, symbolizing the power of God. So David confesses in 10a that even if he goes to the far westward reaches, no doubt a, um, a lonely place to be, God's power is there to lead him, not to trap and confine him. And the verbs used in verse 10 also reflect a change of tone on David's part. The Hebrew verb translated lead is the same verb found in Psalm 23. Turn to Psalm 23 to see it. Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is a well-known psalm about the Lord being our shepherd. And in Psalm 23, verse 3, see if you can identify the verb there. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness, righteousness for his name's sake. What's the verb? It's the verb guides in English. Now this is the same verb David chooses to use in Psalm 139.10 that we're looking at this morning. So turn back to Psalm 139. And in Psalm 139, you'll see in verse 10 that this verb is translated leads. Like a shepherd leading his, um, shepherd's leading of his flock of sheep. His purpose being to protect them from harm and provide for their needs. Your hand will lay hold of me, and 10b is rendered from a Hebrew verb meaning to hold fast or seize, as in God holding David firmly in his power. So the tone in verse 10 has switched to David finding comfort in God's guidance and power at any time and in any place. The second strophe concludes with verses 11 and 12. If I say, surely the darkness will, will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. In verse 11, David contemplates that any of the four possible escape destinations that he listed in verses 7 through 9 might land him, land him in darkness, which wouldn't serve to improve his lot very much. Our word overwhelm, overwhelm in verse 11 is derived from a Hebrew verb meaning to cover, to envelop, to grip hard. Here it is a darkness engulfing and hiding a person from God. In verse 12, David is again demonstrating a change in his tone. David admits that darkness doesn't hide things from God's sight in the way it does from human eyes. God is able to see through dark to see through darkness as easily as we see through light. Makes no difference to him. It's in verse 12 that David sees the light, no pun intended again, about how God's constant presence offers a sense of security worthy of praise. He is realizing that neither utter darkness nor great distance will separate him from God's knowledge and presence. 
What's more, he is allowing himself to find comfort in that. In beginning verse 13 with the word for, moving on now to verse 13, David indicates that what is to follow explains what has preceded it. Well, we've just read in verses 1 through 12 that David is proclaiming God's complete knowledge of and constant presence with David. So in his third strophe, David is going to explain why it is that God has full knowledge of and constant presence with we humans. Look at verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. So what does verse 13 tell us about why God has this full knowledge of and constant presence with we humans? Because he created us. We use the term omnipotence when describing this kind of power that only God possesses. Verse 13 is a marvelous picture of God's mysterious embryonic process of fetal development. Formed is rendered from a Hebrew word, from a, from a Hebrew word meaning to create, to bring forth, as in forming a fetus in the womb. Inward parts is derived from the Hebrew noun for kidneys. And while it could refer to our inner organs, Alan Ross observes that it's a reference to something else. Naming something by means of something else with which it is closely related is a common technique in Hebrew poetry. What's happened in verse, th in verse 13 is that the use of the word kidneys or inward parts is actually referring to our soul. Continuing in 13b, note that David uses describing God's creating a child's fetus within the womb. I'm sorry, uh, continuing verse 13, note the term David uses describing God's creating a uh, child's fetus within the womb. See it there? Wove. We see the same verb in Job chapter 10, where Job asks, Did you not knit me together with bones and sinews? This verb meaning to weave together, to knit, is figurative, of course, comparing the formation of the body to the weaving of a beautiful tapestry. The point here in verse 13 is, who could have a truer and deeper knowledge of man than his creator? Recognizing God's creation of his soul and his body in, in verse 13, David breaks out into praise and thanksgiving in verse 14. We'll read verse 14. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. In the first half of verse 14, David marvels at God's amazing power in, power in creating him in the womb. And then in 15b, David declares that all of the works of God are wonderful and that he knows this deep in his soul. Beginning in verse 15, David further considers God's work of superintending the process of human development 
inside the womb. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in, the sec- in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. The reference to frame is to bones, the human skeletal framework of the body. The word made has the meaning to make, to complete. J.J. Perone suggests that the word made has the central notion of performing an activity with a distinct purpose or with a goal in view, leaving no doubt that the formation of human life is anything but a random evolutionary event. Rather, we read that we are skillfully wrought in the woven sense of verse 13, like that of fine embroidery and needlework. All of this happens in the womb, referred to here by David in the figurative sense as the depths of the earth, because it too remains a region of darkness and mystery. I mean, just think about it. Back in David's day, before sonograms and such, no one knew what was going on in the womb. And considering that both a soul and a body are being knit together in the womb, we still don't comprehend today how it all happens. David continues in verse 16. Your eyes have, set my, have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. The unformed substance David speaks of in verse uh, 16 is the unformed child in the womb seen by God's eyes before its birth. By the way, this is a compelling evidence for the sanctity of human life at conception and in God's eyes even before conception. The second part of verse 16 presents us with some difficulty because of the uncertainty of the term all in the phrase all were written. Now, what does seem certain is that the all is a reference to what is written in God's book. So we know that David is stating that all were written in this book. And the book must be a figurative reference to God's complete knowledge because God doesn't need to write things down in a book in order to record them and remember them. He's omniscient. But what is the term all referring to? That's the big question. Well, I can tell you there's not a lot of consensus among commentators as to what the all refers to. But most land in one of two camps. One camp says all could be a reference to the length of David's life, having been predetermined by God before his birth, and likely not only the length of his life, but the activities of activities as well, all recorded in this, in this book. We would conclude from this, uh, we would conclude this from just a casual reading of the text, and I think all believers find solace in acknowledging God has numbered our days. But there's some pretty strong evidence out, out of the other camp for the all in verse 16 being referring to Uh, actually something else. Consider that our English word ordained is rendered from the Hebrew verb yatsar, which is a verb meaning to form, to fashion. 
We see it used in God's fashioning of man from the dust of the ground in Genesis 2-7. Similarly, here in verse 16, it is used to mean God's creative works in the womb. As such, the all refers to all of the intricate parts of the embryo, rendering 16b to refer to the days it took for David's parts to be fashioned inside the womb. Well, whether the all refers to the length of David's life or to the much shorter length of time in which God fashioned his parts in the womb, the end of verse 16 states that God knew this before David was even formed. And that's the bigger point David is making here. Before even our physical existence, God in his omniscience knew us. And in his omnipotence, his divine power, God created us. David ends his third strophe in this psalm by reflecting on the preciousness of God's relationship with him in verses 17 and 18. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God! How vast is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I, when I awake, I am still with you. God's thoughts about David are the subject in these two verses. Note that David is not saying, God, the way you think about things is really precious. What David is saying is, precious are your thoughts, God, that are directed to me. The word some comes from the term for a head, a person, hair. This term is used in Exodus 30 verse 12 as a numerical sum in the context of a census to be taken of the sons of Israel in order to number them as in counting heads. So David is astounded at the number of God's thoughts that are directed toward him. The sheer number of them would exceed the number of grains of sand on the earth, he says, beginning in verse 18. David ends this passage stating that every time he awakes, he finds that he is in God's presence. We're going to stop in the psalm there today. Let me, let me um, summarize a little bit what we've covered in these 18 verses by offering some conclusions. First, God has intimate knowledge of our actions, thoughts, motivations. Next, God's omniscience is incomprehensible to us. We cannot, cannot escape confine, the confines of God's knowledge and presence. The power of God's ever-present right hand delivers and guides us. The absolute truth that God is creator and that man is merely the creature. And that we should recognize and appreciate that human life is mysteriously fashioned by the hand of God. We'll end our lesson today with a quote from Warren Wiersbe that I think captures David's intentions in writing this psalm 
and provides New Testament believers with an edifying application. Life is not a prison. It is an exciting pilgrimage. And the Lord has prepared us for what he is and the Lord has prepared us for what he has prepared for us. Our responsibility is to yield ourselves to him daily, ponder his thoughts, found in his word and walk in the spirit. God thinks of us. Should we not think about him? Well, we began today's lesson noting that Psalm 139 is a psalm about God's relationship to the individual. God first created man back in the Garden of Eden, Eden with that relationship. However, because of Adam's sin, that relationship was broken. Not only with Adam, it was broken with all of us. As, as, it, says, as it states in Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God seeks to restore that relationship with us by providing a way of rescue. And I like the, the kind of the gospel in the nutshell that um, is found in the book of New Testament book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 um, in verse 3. Um, Christ died for our sins, it says in verse 3. He was in verse 4 then that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And, and that really is, is the, the basis for the hope that we have. Christ's death in our place. Um, with his resurrection, his being raised um, on the third day as proof that God the Father accepted this sacrifice that was made on our behalf leaving us only to believe. Um, that belief is, is, uh, is easy. There's no magic words. There's no magic formula. No magic place you have to be. No priest that you have to have with you. It's just believing. Um, um, meaning it's, it's that inner conviction that something tr is true or trustworthy. And if you want to know more about that, on the back of the hymnal, that gospel message, that good news is printed for us every Sunday. And some scripture verses that take you through that. So avail yourselves of that.